Hey everybody, Aaron Bishop here. Just wanted to let you know, I have written a book. It has been published and it is available now on Amazon.com. Name of the book is The Power of Passover, A Christian's Guide to the Festival of Redemption. If you want to know what Passover is about, just a really deep dive into the festival, into its history, and into why we're where we're at today. And even an instruction guide on how to hold your own Passover. It's got everything in it. So if you'd like to check that out, go to Amazon.com and search for The Power of Passover. And now we return you to your regularly scheduled program. I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we use scripture to help us to understand our own nature and tendencies, and then how to fix them, because frankly, they're broken. Well, Israel is free, good and truly free from the enemy and oppressor that had for so many decades and centuries caused them to suffer greatly. The enemy has been defeated in an epic, astounding, and miraculously undeniable way. Hashem fights for his people. He himself saved Israel when no other could even hope to lift a single finger. He made a way when there was no way. And now, suddenly, Israel is free and alone and in a desolate and barren wasteland. But God is on their side. They know this now. There's no denying that Hashem is intimately involved in this deliverance. He has proven himself over and over and over, but only in certain ways. I mean, doubts still linger in their mind. Just how far can we trust this God? Where do his qualities begin and end? I mean, sure, he's strong and powerful and capable of great destruction and mighty acts of judgment. But does he care? Does he love? What does he do when his people need something more from his hands? Does he provide for their essential needs? Does he even know about their most essential needs? You see, in Egypt, each of the gods had a focus, a thing that they controlled and they had power over. A god of war and violence rarely had any involvement in any other area or aspect of life. And if they did, it was usually severely limited. They fought battles. Farming and the bringing forth of life are different things that were against the nature of a god of war. Basic human sustenance was not at their forte. It was battles, destruction, strength, authority, and all the things connected to warfare and the protection in the midst of warfare. Those were their specialty. What had been blatantly demonstrated up till now is just that. Power, authority, warfare. God was in control of those things, 
That they knew for sure. But now Israel is alone with this God, and this God alone. And they know for a fact that he is a God of war. In fact, we read that in the song that they sang in chapter 15. But just because Israel is now free of Egypt, it does not mean that Egypt has left Israel. Many of the ways of Egypt still linger in the people who are now in the wilderness. Well, two weeks ago I pointed out how with the death of the firstborn of Egypt, the practice of the Egyptian religion was destroyed. But the Egyptian religion survived. It survived in Israel. Israel's own firstborn carried within them Egyptian worship practices, Egyptian understandings of the God, and Egyptian way of seeing the world. And in Egypt, a god of war would not or could not provide food or water. It was impossible. And in the place where Israel is going, food, water, these things are going to be the things of primary concern. In Egypt, a god could not cross national boundaries. And now here they are with the sea separating them from the land where this god had worked so miraculously. Basic survival, life and death. These things now become the primary concern of Israel. All other concerns are now cast to the wayside. Israel is alone with their God. Now what? Let's read this week's Parsha and discuss the implications of what we discover in the story of the first month of freedom for Israel. Exodus 15.19-16.24 For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea. And Hashem brought back the waters of the sea upon them, and the children of Israel went on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to Hashem, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And Moshe brought Israel from the sea of reeds, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And they came to Marah, and they were unable to drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. So the name was called Marah. And the people grumbled against Moshe, saying, what are we to drink? Then they cried out to Hashem, and Hashem showed him a tree. And when he threw it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a law and a right ruling for them, and there he tried them. And he said, If you diligently obey the voice of Hashem your Elohim, to do what is right in his eyes, and shall listen to his commands, and shall guard all his laws, I shall bring on you none of the diseases on which I brought the Mitzrites, for I am Hashem who heals you. And they came to Elim, where there were twelve fountains of water, and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. And they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second new moon, after their going out of the land of Mitzrayim. And all the congregation of the children of Israel grumbled against Moshe and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, if only we had died by the hand of Hashem in the land of Mitzrayim when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to satisfaction. For you have brought us out into this wilderness and put all this assembly to death with hunger. And Hashem said to Moshe, See, I am raining bread from the heavens for you, and the people shall go out to gather a day's portion every day in order to try them, whether they walk in my Torah or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And Moshe and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that Hashem has brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim, and in the morning you shall see the honor of Hashem, for he hears your grumbling against him. And what are we that you grumble against us? And Moshe said, 
and that Hashem gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to satisfaction. For Hashem hears your grumblings which you make against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against Hashem. And Moshe said to Aaron, See to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before Hashem, for he has heard your grumblings. And it came to be, as Aaron spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness and see the esteem of Hashem appeared in the cloud. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, Between the evenings you are to eat meat, and in the morning you are to be satisfied with bread, and you shall know that I am Hashem your Elohim. And it came to be that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And the layer of dew went up, and see, on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance, as fine as frost on the ground. And the children of Israel saw it, and they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moshe said to them, It is the bread which Hashem has given you to eat. This is the word which Hashem has commanded, that every man gather it according to each one's need, an omer for each being, according to the number of beings. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. And the children of Israel did so, and gathered some more, some less. And they measured it by omers, and he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered according to his need. And Moshe said, Let no one leave any of it until morning. And they did not listen to Moshe, so some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moshe was wroth with them. And they gathered it every morning, each one according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. And it came to be on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moshe. And he said to them, This is what Hashem has said. Tomorrow is a rest, a Sabbath, set apart to Hashem. That which you bake, bake. That which you cook, cook. And lay up for yourselves all that is left over to keep until morning. And they laid it up till morning, as Moshe commanded. And it did not stink, and no worm was in it. The sea has been crossed. Pharaoh has been destroyed. The horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea. And in the beginning, the people praised God with song and dance and instruments. And then they begin to travel. They leave the side of the Sea of Reeds and they begin to travel inland in the wilderness of Shur. And for three days they travel and their celebration quickly turns to angst. For three days, they have not encountered any water. And then on the third day, suddenly they come upon a pool. But the water of the pool, it's bitter. It's undrinkable. And the people begin to question. At first, the question is a simple question. What are we to drink? There is in this question an implied accusation. But for now, the accusation doesn't touch their lips. The question is asked. And Moses takes the question to Hashem. Hashem shows Moses a tree. And they throw the tree in the water. And voila, the water is made drinkable. And it says that in this place, Hashem made a law for Israel in order to test them. What is that law for Israel that's testing them? Well, it's found in verse 26. If you diligently obey the voice of Hashem your God to do what is right in His eyes, and shall listen to His commands, and shall guard His laws, I shall bring on you none of the diseases I brought on the Mitzrites, for I am Hashem who heals you. Hashem, who delivered Israel, this God of battle, he tells Israel in this statement that he is also a God of health and wellness. He speaks to them of another aspect of his nature that they did not yet really know in order to test them, to discover whether or not they trust him at his word. 
and to do so, he claims what to them would be contradictory natures, war and health. These two things, they don't mix for an ancient people, but Hashem is claiming both. And the question comes, can he be trusted? I mean, this first instance of the wood and the water, it's not that spectacular. It's not like what he'd done before. It's simple. It's a bit odd. Uh, but for people who are used to various forms of magic, and this was kind of in line of what was familiar to them. And then the next day, they continue on, and they come to a place called Elim. Now, this place is an oasis, a place of 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees. And the place name itself, it, that's exactly what it means. It means palms. And it's here that the chapter ends. So last week, we looked at the numbering of the days that are recounted in this story of Scripture, and we discovered that the crossing of the Sea of Reeds was an event that is memorialized and celebrated in the festival of first fruits. Well, if we keep counting, we discover something else significant. The seventh day from Passover puts Israel where? Elim. A place of plenty, a place of relaxation. The final day of matzah. It's a day of rest, uh, no work. It's a day of celebration. And the numbers contained in this story are important. Twelve springs of water, seventy trees. Now, 12 is usually associated with the number of the tribes of Israel, and 70 is the number that's ascribed to the number of the nations. Uh, ever since Genesis 10 and the table of the nations, there are 70 nations there. And then later in Deuteronomy, it talks about how the number of the nations were set according to the sons of Jacob or Israel. But the implication is that there are 70 of them. And what do the 12 springs do? What is their purpose here in the wilderness? The springs give water to the trees. The trees, they'd be completely unable to flourish in this wilderness, but because of the wells, the trees can flourish. Now, this is a really cool symbol going on in the text here, because it's a symbol of Israel being the source of life to the nations who are in the wilderness. I mean, the nations in the entire world, they're all in the wilderness. They're in the wilderness of sin and death. But Israel, Israel is given the charge of being that spring of living water that gives life to the nations. Well, when we usually approach Passover, we recognize Passover as an event in time, the memorialization of the redemption. Redemption how? Well, it was redemption through the destruction of the enemy, right? The destruction of the enemy on the Passover, the destruction of the enemy in the Red Sea, a battle fought, a battle won, but we rarely consider what the days within the week of matzah represent because our focus is almost always on the event of the Passover. But it's on the sixth day of matzah that Israel is given their first statute with an ongoing promise. Obey the voice of Hashem, and you will not suffer. He is your healer. Hashem Rophei. And then on the seventh day, a place of plenty and rest is provided for Israel. And if we recognize that this festival week, as recorded here in Scripture, is chiastic in nature, we may discover something of essential import in our understanding of redemption as represented in the festival of matzah. Because redemption for sure is an act that is accomplished in warfare and battle. It's something that Hashem does on our behalf through the destruction of the enemy. But the greatest enemy of mankind is death. And 1,500 years after this event, death was demonstrated to be powerless over those who take up the image of Messiah. But there's a corollary idea of redemption contained here that we sometimes miss. 
The removal of death is only part of the story. The other half is healing. I'm not talking about just physical healing of physical ailments. So that, that is actually part of this. But that is the most basic understanding of this idea. Because usually the healing in a person begins on the inside. A healing of past or emotional traumas. A healing of false ideas of who God is and how he operates. Redemption is a removal of death from the midst of the psyche of a person and the corollary of a new creation then being affected within them. Because you see, the God of Israel is not simply a God of war. He is a God of health and a God of life. Luke 4, 18-19, when Yeshua announces his ministry, what does he say? He reads from Isaiah and he reads, The Spirit of Hashem is upon me because he has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to send away the crushed ones with release, to proclaim the acceptable year of Hashem. Well, Israel was the captives that release was being proclaimed to here in Exodus. But now also health is being proclaimed to the people of Israel. The gospel is not primarily a message of death to the enemy. It's a message of life and health and wellness to all who truly hear it. But God is not limited to just one attribute or nature. He is a God whose nature encompasses all spheres of existence to one degree or another. And redemption is not simply a release from sin and death. It's a drawing near to the God of life as well. And the seventh day of Matzah celebrates this fact. It celebrates that the God that we serve will bring us to a place like Elim, a place of plenty in the midst of nothingness, a God who will care for his people in the wilderness. But the people still don't trust. They have faith in Hashem now, that he exists, that he's powerful, but does he care? So far we haven't seen a whole lot of him caring for the people other than to hold back some of his judgments. What has been revealed to the world about this God of Israel is that he is violent and he is mighty and he is powerful and he has authority. Okay, so now he's shown them how to clear some water and he's led them to an oasis. So he cares at least that much, right? But where is the power on display? To the casual observer, these things aren't all that impressive. Well, then comes chapter 16. And in chapter 16, we discover that a month has gone by and it's at this time that Israel runs out of food, and they have not discovered any sources of food along the way. And those old thoughts, they creep back in. It's only been 30 days since they were miraculously delivered from the greatest enemy that they had ever known. And yet all it takes is the slightest adversity, and they begin to question once again. And in their questioning, this time, they begin to level those accusations that were unspoken earlier. We find this in Exodus 16, verse 3. If only we had died by the hand of Hashem in the land of Mitzrayim, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate the bread to satisfaction, for you have brought us into the wilderness to put all the assembly to death with hunger. Once again, they assume the worst. They accuse God of evil intent. Now, what is it that they do not do in either of these cases, either in the previous case at Elim or the case here where they're hungry? They don't ask. 
They take an attitude of, God knows my situation. He's brought me to this place in my life, and so he knows my limitations. He knows my needs, and now it's on him to meet them. They take this idea of, I shouldn't have to ask God for anything because he already knows. And when Hashem simply does not meet all their needs, they begin to assume the worst about him. He's bringing us to our death. He intends evil toward us. In both of these instances, we discover something vitally important, something that we can learn about our own relationship with God. In the first case, do you think that it was God's plan for the people to drink at Mara? I mean, think about this. Mara was bitter, it was undrinkable. In Elim, it was only a day away. But when the people arrived at Mara, the water was present now. And Mara was just a reminder of just how thirsty they were. The thought comes that if God is leading us and he has led us to this place of bitter water, then this is obviously what he's intended for us. And this is the answer to our unspoken request. But it doesn't look like an answer. It's bitter. It's, it's unworkable. If, if God really cared for us, he wouldn't have led us here. Even if the shortest way to our true destination of fresh water and shade passes through here. And even though Mara may not have been God's first plan, the reminder to the people of their thirst drove them to accuse God of holding out on them. Now, one gets the idea that Israel had no questions about water. They trusted God was leading them to a place to drink. But when they come to a place of water that they cannot drink, when God brings them to a place that looks like it should be the solution, but it's not, what do they do? They turn to grumbling and doubt. The thought process goes something like this. God is looking out for my well-being, and he is my rock and my provider. Hmm, I have a need, but God knows my needs. He will provide. Oh, look, there's the answer to my prayers. It's right there. Oh, but wait, the answer, it's impossible. It contains within it bitterness and hardship that I wasn't expecting. This isn't an answer to prayer, even though I've never actually prayed for this thing. If this is not the answer to prayer, then God is holding out on me. He's not even intending to lead me to a true and workable solution. Oh no, what will I do to survive this? How are we going to make it? Is God holding out on us? I have a need. How is this need going to be provided for now if the solution that God has given us is so unworkable? And at that point, an attitude of accusation takes hold, and the grumbling begins. And it's only at this point, finally, that a prayer goes up to God. And the way to turn the bitter answer into a workable answer is revealed to the one who asked. And then what do we discover? If they just waited one more day, what they needed would have been provided abundantly in the way that God had originally intended to be their relief. But the people look around them. They begin to worry. They saw water that was not necessarily intended for them, and they coveted it. It consumed their minds. They saw the water that they could not drink and assumed that God was holding out on them, or was not looking out for them, or had evil intents for them. They allowed their complaints to cause them to stop following the path. This mindset is one that's all too easy to fall into. And in chapter 15, if we look closer, we learn a very important lesson. The accusation is made. God is leading us into the wilderness to kill us with hunger. 
Now, to be fair to Israel at this point, they did not know Hashem. They've not had the chance to see him work. The stuff at the sea with the plagues, it doesn't help them now. They don't need a warrior in this situation. They need a real and visceral example of his compassion. And so far, they've not really had one. Their past understanding of things, it still prevents them from recognizing the truth of Hashem. And so Hashem does not punish them for their failure this time. He's merciful. He's kind and understanding. They're ignorant, and so Hashem works to cure their ignorance of his qualities. And in verse 4, we read once again that the manna itself that's being sent is for a test. Now, what kind of test? Well, one might call what God is doing here quid pro quo. I know it was in the news recently all over with the impeachment stuff going on. But that's how God's operating here. God is, in essence, saying in both the end of 15 and the beginning of 16 that he is providing this miraculous substance for Israel in order to test their intentions. Will they obey him or not? Will they trust him or not? For what is it that he's asking of them in this case with the manna? Gather only what you need for today. Trust me, there will be more tomorrow. But the people, the people are suspicious. They don't trust God, and it shows. I mean, after all that he has done for them, they have little faith. And just after it's said that they finally believed in Hashem. There is an important lesson here. Something that we really must grasp hold of. We see it in the verse 3 that we read earlier. If only we had died by the hand of Hashem in the land of Mitzrayim, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to satisfaction. In Egypt, what are they equating Egypt with at this point? Not with slavery, not with hardship, but with plenty. They sat by pots of meat. They ate bread to satisfaction. They are equating Egypt with plenty and good and wonderful provision. Egypt provided for them, not God. And so when God provides for his people, he gives them exactly what they ask for. He tells them, in the evening, pheasants, or quail, the Hebrew isn't really certain there, will descend upon the camp of Israel in the wilderness. And in the morning, a white substance is found lying on the ground. The people complained about not having meat and about not having bread. And so Hashem gives them meat and he gives them bread. Now this is awesome, this is fantastic, but their complaint, it included something else. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to put all this assembly to death with hunger. That accusation, you have brought us out here to put us to death, it sticks with them. From their first moments at the edge of the sea, they complained about this. And it will show up again and again and again. Hashem has brought us out here in order to kill us. He intends evil for us. Now, when you serve a God who gives people what they ask for, it's very important that we are careful what we declare to be the truth. The people declared their desire for meat and bread, and God delivered meat and bread for them. But then the people accuse Hashem of seeking their evil, of not being able to support them in the midst of the wilderness, of being pleased to see them suffering. And for now, Hashem is content to simply train them differently. But that's not going to last forever. 
And we'll find throughout the rest of the Torah, specifically when we get to the book of Numbers, that this accusation rears its ugly head over and over and over. And what is it that Hashem finally gives them? What does He give this first generation? He grants their request. The people keep accusing Hashem of seeking their death, of only leading them to the wilderness for the purpose of destroying them. And so a point comes where Hashem determines to give them what they want. They're so focused on God seeking only their destruction that He gives them their destruction. He delivers them over to their own desires. And this truth is so essentially important for us to truly incorporate and to understand into our idea of who God is. In the beginning, it's okay to be without faith that God will deliver and that God won't provide. He can handle ignorant accusations from creatures of dust, and he will provide in the midst of hardship in order to prove himself. But he will do so also to prove you. He will give you what you need for that day. No more, no less, exactly what you need at the minimum. And then the test will come. Can you trust? Can you have faith? Can you believe with all your being that God will provide everything that you need tomorrow? Can you learn to not worry and believe that Hashem will care for you in every circumstance, in every moment? This is something that we read of in the New Testament in many places, but perhaps the best known is Matthew 6. In Matthew 6, we read what has become known as the Lord's Prayer. And in this prayer, we read as, as the center of the prayer, give us today our daily bread. Not give us a big bank account, not give us a retirement fund, but give us exactly what we need to finish today the sustenance and the energy for just one more day. And then later in the chapter, Yeshua speaks extensively on this topic of trusting for God to care for your needs. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. What things are that? Food, drink, and clothing, specifically in context of the passage. And then the very final verse of the chapter, we read, Do not then worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow shall have its own worries. Each day has enough evil of itself. And this is the truth that's being revealed all the way back here in Exodus 16. Worry about today and trust that God will care for you tomorrow in the same way that he did yesterday. Anything more is useless. And when we begin to worry about tomorrow and the day after that and the one after that, we can easily seek into the pattern of not enough. So let me ask you, what does it take to retire in America? If you look it up, you'll read numbers of anywhere from $1.5 to $7 million to retire. Now it's too easy to look at how much or how little you've saved for this. You've saved for your retirement and to think it's not enough. And then you worry about tomorrow as you slave away to build your nest egg for tomorrow. But God says, don't worry about it. Now, don't get me wrong here. He doesn't say don't invest for tomorrow. He doesn't say don't become wealthy. But he states clearly, don't worry about it. If you live your life seeking him and his kingdom, you'll be taken care of. Not by what you have done, but because of his nature. He will care for you. And as the Parsha closes, we, for the first time in Scripture, 
we're given a direct command regarding the Sabbath. And in this case, the Sabbath is steeped in the same ideas that we've been talking about. If you trust that God will provide all of your needs, if you follow his word for your life, you will have enough. And in some cases, it'll be just enough to take the day off on the Sabbath, to rest and relax and enjoy this world that has been created for your enjoyment, to spend time with the things that are the most important in life, God, family, and community in that order. Taking a Sabbath is a declaration through action that you agree with Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 through 3. It says, And you shall remember that Hashem your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you, to prove you, to know what's in your heart, whether you guard his commands or not. And he humbled you, and he let you suffer hunger, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, to make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Hashem. Hashem caused you to hunger for the purpose of testing and proving you. He caused hunger and thirst and time in the wilderness, this place where life should be impossible to exist in order to test you and to teach you. You don't live by the sweat of your brow. You don't live by the food on your table. You don't draw breath simply because you have lungs. You live, we all live at the word of Hashem alone. You cannot make life work by working all of the time. And the Sabbath day here, it's steeped in a recognition of what occurred in Genesis 1. Hashem, the God of all creation, He in the beginning gave us life. And as we take a break from our work, we recognize that He took a break from His work. And we recognize he is the one who sustains us in our work. And he is the one who sustains us in our rest. Add to this that the Genesis 1 narrative is steeped in the temple and kingship language, and we discover that the rest of the Sabbath day, it's a day that we celebrate our king. Scratch it, it's a day we celebrate with our king. In essence, the food that we eat on the Sabbath, we recognize as coming from his table. As Joseph dished out to his brothers in Egypt, feeding each one from his own plate, we too are given our food at the banquet of our king, and we receive it directly from his hand. But wait a minute, I made the food on the Sabbath day, you might say. I bought the food. But as part of the body of Messiah, as we receive food which he made from the ground, or as we eat from each other, as we gather in community, we are in a very meaningful way receiving the food from the hand of our king. This Parsha, the, the very first events after crossing the Red Sea, they're geared toward this one idea. The very last verse of chapter 14 was that Israel believed in Hashem, and so the test comes. Is this a truth, or is this simply a platitude? Do they really trust, or is it simply lip service? The people themselves, they think they have faith, but do they? What's revealed in them when they face a trial of water and they're thirsty? Do they continue on leaving behind what may not be for them, continuing in faith that God is yet going to provide? Or do they begin to worry and complain and entertain the thought that Hashem is not looking out for them? One more day and they would have had everything that they needed. When they run out of food, do they have faith to simply ask God for what they need 
Do they continue on in faith that he will provide, or do they give voice to their doubts? Do they begin to attack God's character and his reputation and tear him down because they have been brought low? And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of the people of doubt and accusation, and the God of gifts and testing, we see one man being exemplified. One man who simply asks, who speaks up and makes a request from God and believes in faith that God will provide. But his providence, it's not without strings. He expects a return of honor and glory to him. He expects you to trust him to do what is best for his kingdom and for the world. So a few months back, uh, my wife Rebecca had a severe asthma attack. We left our normal weekly Sabbath service. We went home and she had some difficulty breathing on the way home. Our stove had broken the day before, and my website had been hacked just minutes before this particular Shabbat. And so Sunday was going to be the day of putting everything back together, getting everything working again, and just in time to go back into the new week afresh. But then, all night that night, and in the morning the next day, Rebecca simply could not catch her breath. And I did not handle it well. I began to entertain doubts. I mean, things were just not playing out the way that I wished that they would. And so as we drove to the ER that next day, we came across a road that was closed due to a bridge being out. Every little thing began to get under my skin. And when I get in situations like this, I begin to shut down. It looked as if life was turning against us. I begin to add up all the ways that things are not going right, and I begin to dwell on them. And for a moment, I entertain the thought that perhaps none of what we've gone through in the past three years was worth it if we still had to deal with sickness through asthma, through lack of having no stove to cook, and attack the hackers on my website. I mean, I'm ashamed to admit that I despaired for a moment of anything ever getting better. In a way similar to Israel in the wilderness without water, the thought crossed my mind that perhaps it would have been better to have not begun this process in the first place. In the stress of the moment and the reminder that this world is still fallen, I failed, I doubted, and I questioned. I went to the ER, and Rebecca, she was taken back immediately. I went and parked the car. I took a moment to pray. I tried to calm myself and ask God for guidance and protection. And then I went in and I joined her in her room. And within two hours of checking in, she was discharged to go home. The treatments worked. Her breathing improved drastically and we were sent home. Once home, I then took more time. And in that time, I began to study for this lesson. And I was convicted. I recognized in this Parsha my own failure to trust Hashem to take care of everything that had come up so suddenly. I allowed these circumstances to cause doubt, to doubt Him, to doubt His goodness. It was Tuesday morning, finally, at 3 a.m., when my website was up and running again. And then by 9.30 a.m. that same Tuesday, our oven and our stove were working again. Now, I tell this story for several reasons. First and foremost, to brag on God for his salvation in these situations. I mean, two hours at the ER, that's, that's unheard of. It's usually more than two hours just to get into a room. And the stove, it needed nothing. 
I don't know what happened, but the repairman plugged it back in and it worked. And the website, it took a lot more time. I had to restore the site from backups, but it was up. It was running finally. But I also tell the story to highlight my own reaction to difficulty and hardship as they, as they once again encroached on my life. The attitude of my flesh was to get angry, to be upset, to, to even entertain for just a moment or two accusations towards God. I mean, I who had seen him work, I who have seen his hand provide, I who've seen him deliver, save, and heal, and yet when the situation arose once again and things didn't go the way that I wanted, I resorted to assuming the worst. And it would have been so easy to simply sit there and allow those thoughts to grow and to consume me. I mean, I like to believe that my faith is firm, and yet when I reflect on the situation from five months ago, and then I reflect on just this last week in my life and the everything going on with the coronavirus and all of the stuff going on in my personal life, I have to wonder, is my faith firm? I mean, I know I can't be the only one who has this problem, who has this issue. The immediate human response is anger, fear, doubt, depression, or accusation. This is the human way. It's the way of the flesh to respond in this way. We all want to believe that if we were to lose everything tomorrow, that we would just shrug it off and continue to trust. But would we? Can we? For all we know, with COVID-19 encroaching daily, we all may, in fact, lose everything. And the answer to that question of can we get through this on our own, the answer to that is no, we cannot. I mean, you've heard it said that God will not give you more than you can handle, but that simply is not the truth. God will pour on you many things that you cannot handle on your own. And the only way to make it through will be to trust in Him. I mean, Paul opens 2 Corinthians in this way in verse 8-11. through 11. He says, For we do not wish you to be ignorant, brothers, of our pressure which came to us in Asia, that we were weighed down exceedingly beyond ability, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who rescues us from so great a death, and does rescue, in whom we trust, and that he shall rescue us, you also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks shall be given by many on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through many. God gave Paul and his companions more than they could bear, to the point where they feared for their very lives. They could not handle it. Why did God do this? What is the purpose? It says it right there. So that they would not trust in themselves and in their own power to deliver them, but that they would trust in the one who raises from the dead. If they're going to die, well, the only hope I have is in the one who can raise the dead. I mean, it's easy to doubt. It's easy to blame. It's easy to simply shut down or shut out. It's easy to try to rise up and overcome. But you know what's just as easy? To open your mouth and ask God to deliver you. James 4, 2-3 says, You desire and you have not. You murder and are jealous and are unable to obtain. You strive and fight and you do not possess because you do not ask. 
How many of us never get to the point of asking and not receiving? How many of us simply don't ask anything from God? We assume. We assume that He knows our plight, and we expect Him to deliver without having to make a request. Now, I know there's more to James 4 in context, but for now, let's focus on this verse. Because this is what we see happening in this Parsha. We must be willing to ask God for things, to open our mouths and make a request, and to make that request without the accusation. And that's the difficult part. Requesting deliverance without accusation. Saying, God, heal me from this difficulty without even the thought of, that you have put me in for my own demise. And for me, that's the highlight of this passage. Do we trust him to care for us? Do we trust him to heal us? Do we trust him to protect from hardship, heartache, and disease? Do we trust him to have our best interests at heart? More importantly, though, more important than do you trust Do you ask him to help you when it looks like he has failed you? Or do you doubt? Do you question? Do you simply give up? Well, as we see in the text, Israel faced the impossible. They faced death and they quailed, pun fully intended. But Moses demonstrates for us the path of life in the difficult situations of life. Call out to God. Seek His face, His provision, and His salvation. Because without Him, you will fail. You cannot do this life on your own. Trust Him and ask Him. These are the way of life as we darish chai. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Darish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.